John chapter 11, verse 1. Before we dive into the text this morning, I just want to recap, in case you haven't been with us the last few Sundays, where we are as we get to this particular chapter. In John chapter 8, we read how Jesus entered the temple precincts early in the morning, and he preached a rather incredible sermon. Now, that sermon was briefly interrupted by a group that brought before Jesus a woman who had been caught in adultery. Jesus finishes the exchange in John 8, verse 56, by declaring, Your father Abraham rejoiced to see my day, and he saw it and was glad. No doubt perplexed by what Jesus has just said. The religious leaders, they then ask, You're not yet 50 years old. How have you seen Abraham? And then John records that Jesus replied with a most extraordinary statement. Jesus said, most assuredly, I just say to you, before Abraham was, I am. Now, Because of the clear and undeniable implications of Jesus applying to himself this divine name of God, the great I am, found in Exodus 3. In verse 59, we're told that the religious leaders that were there, hearing Jesus say those words... They took up stones to throw at him, but Jesus hid himself and went out from the temple, going through the midst of them, and we're told he so passed by. As Jesus is escaping this attempt on his life, as he's making his way through the streets of Jerusalem, he notices a man born blind. Because of this man's complete blindness was a perfect illustration of the spiritual blindness of the religious establishment. Jesus, he decides to heal the man in a very dramatic way. Needless to say, this sets off a whole chain reaction. A series of events recorded in chapters 9 and 10 that ultimately lead to another exchange with Jesus and the religious leaders that result in another of Jesus' claims of divinity. And in response to these things, John records in chapter 10, verse 39, that for a second time, they sought to seize Jesus, to stone him to death, but then John says he escaped out of their hand. Now, on account of these two aggressive attempts on Jesus' life, John closes chapter 10 by telling us that Jesus wisely decides to bail. Jerusalem had become too hot. He decides to leave town. John says that he went again beyond the Jordan to the place where John was baptizing at the first, and there he stayed. Now what makes that significant is that chapter 11 picks up with Jesus still hanging out down near the Jordan River, this secluded place, a few months after the fact. Well, verse 1 of John 11, we read that a certain man was sick, Lazarus of Bethany, the town of Mary and her sister Martha. It was that Mary, it was that Mary who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was sick. John opens the chapter by shifting the scene from the Jordan to the town of Bethany. Bethany was a suburb of the city of Jerusalem, located about two miles outside of the city on the eastern slopes of the Mount of Olives. Most notably, we'll come to find that Bethany was the hometown of a man named Simon the leper. And we'll learn more about Simon the leper in the weeks to come, the next chapter. But Simon, who we'll see was a man of considerable means, had been healed of his leprosy by Jesus at some unrecorded point in his life. Jesus healed a lot of people. And it was because of the relationship that no doubt resulted between Simon and Jesus. This man's home and Bethany was always open to Jesus and his disciples anytime. They were in Jerusalem. So anytime they came for a feast, keep in mind, though we're not told specifically, it's likely Jesus was always staying in Simon's home in Bethany. So he'd go two miles into the city, do his things. We'd read about him. That night he'd go and lodge with Simon. Now, what results from this dynamic and the incredible amount of time that Jesus spent residing in Simon's home is that over these three years, Jesus became very dear friends, not just with Simon, but the man's three adult children were introduced to them, Lazarus, Mary, and Martha. Since there were many Marys 
mentioned throughout the gospel record. You have Mary Magdalene. You have Mary, the mother of Jesus, just to name two. John, who's writing years after Matthew, Mark, and Luke, he wants to make sure you know which Mary he's talking about. And so he adds that this Mary was the one who anointed the Lord with fragrant oil and wiped his feet with her hair. Now, what makes that interesting is that story isn't found until the next chapter, meaning John's kind of writing about this, letting the audience know who's already familiar with Mary, which Mary this happens to be. Now, in establishing the scene, John adds that Lazarus was sick. This doesn't mean that Lazarus just had gotten a cold. The word sick implies that he had grown weak with illness. We'll come to learn that things had become so dire that Mary, Martha, this family, they feared that Lazarus was going to die as a result of this sickness. On a side note, I love the name Lazarus. Lazarus is actually, it's the Aramaic version of the Hebrew name Eleazar. Eleazar means whom God helps. And I don't think you could find a more fitting name for what's about to happen in this man's life. Now, as we seek to unpack the story, that's only recorded, ironically, in the Gospel of John. Uh, the healing, the resurrection of Lazarus is only recorded in this Gospel. You won't find it in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. But keep in mind, as we unpack the story, that Jesus had a unique relationship with this family. Not only do they love Jesus, not only do they consider Jesus their friend, but it's likely on account of their father's radical healing that they had come to see Jesus for who he truly was. That they saw Jesus as the Christ, the Messiah, the Savior, as well as being the Son of God, divine. This actually is Martha's confession in verse 17. Keep in mind, the siblings, they're more than just friends of Jesus. These men and women are true believers. They're converts. Because of their obvious desperation and their worry concerning the health of their brother Lazarus, the toll this sickness had no doubt taken, coupled with their knowledge that Jesus you know, had the, the ability to heal, that he had healed their father. Verse 3, we read, Therefore these sisters sent to Jesus, saying, Lord, behold, he whom you love is sick. Knowing that Jesus was just a day's journey from, Beth, from Bethany, Mary and Martha send to Jesus a message, likely via a courier. And notice that the sisters make no demands of Jesus. Nor do they even present a specific request. Did you notice that? Instead, they are convinced and confident that if they just simply made Jesus aware of Lazarus' condition, because of Jesus' love for Lazarus, Jesus would act accordingly, no doubt come urgently. I think it's important that we point out right from the beginning of our story that arguably the most significant home in Jesus' life, definitely his ministry, a home in which Jesus' presence was always welcomed, a home filled with believers, a home filled with Jesus' close personal friends, that home was experiencing a serious crisis. Lazarus was Jesus' friend. Jesus loved Lazarus like a brother. Literally, the word love used in verse 3 is phileo, meaning a brotherly love. Philadelphia, the city of brotherly love. Clearly, a genuine relationship with Jesus, I think this is important for us to keep in mind, did not immunize them to sickness, or just the general challenges of residing in a fallen world. Lazarus, a good man, a friend of Jesus, still became sick, suffered, spoiler, will die. Additionally, it should also be mentioned that the text presents no evidence that Lazarus' sickness had somehow resulted from a sin. Or a lack of faith. Lazarus contracted an illness and his fever was dragging him to the inevitable fate of all who live on this rock. A physical death. To their credit, 
these sisters respond to the crisis with the correct approach, don't they? They just bring their honest need before the Lord. They don't make demands. They don't issue edicts. They trust Jesus, right? They bring their, their heart to the Lord. They let him know what's going on. And then they trust. We are confident, Jesus, knowing you and your love, that you're going to act in an appropriate way. Now, here's the question. Would they still trust Jesus when he doesn't act the way they expected? Well, verse 4, when Jesus heard that, so he gets word about Lazarus's sickness. He said, this sickness is not unto death, but for the glory of God, that the Son of God may be glorified through it. What we have recorded here is Jesus's formal reply to Mary and Martha's request. Now, what makes the statement, the sickness is not unto death, so fascinating is that Lazarus is either dead by the time the courier returns to Bethany or Lazarus dies almost immediately afterwards. Now, how do we know that? First, we'll soon learn that by the time Jesus finally arrives in Bethany, Lazarus has been dead for how many days? He's been dead for four days. Now, since logically Jesus will make the journey to Bethany on day four, after tarrying for two days, the courier would have had to have returned on the day of death. Just simple math. Now, whether Jesus' message arrives the moments before Lazarus dies or the hours that follow, the purpose of his message to these sisters was evident either way. Jesus is telling them that the reason for the sickness was not for Lazarus to die, which is interesting when Lazarus has now died, right? But Jesus explains that it's not for his death. The reason Lazarus is sick, Jesus communicates, would be for the Son of God to be glorified through his sickness. Like Jesus is comforting Mary and Martha with an important bit of information. He's wanting them to know, no matter what happens to Lazarus, I'm totally in control. I've got this. Now, it is a challenging statement. It's a challenging promise, especially when Lazarus has now died. But you know, it's not an accident that Jesus' message for these sisters in the place of their tragedy and their grief is almost identical to his response to the disciples' question about the nature of the man's blindness. In John chapter 9, verse 3, Jesus was clear. So they asked, the man's blindness, is it a result of his sin or the sin of his parents? And Jesus says, neither this man nor his parents sinned. But why was the man blind, Jesus says? That the works of God should be revealed in him. Fundamentally, and I know that this is a difficult idea to accept. But Lazarus' sickness was allowed by God to create an opportunity for Jesus to reveal to them a new aspect of himself the tragedy was not random it was allowed for the opportunity it created in their lives you know in the moment of crisis it's important you also take a moment and hold fast to this very promise a promise made by jesus to mary and martha a promise made by jesus to you and i and the promise is simple. Nothing comes into your life without first being allowed by a sovereign God. Nothing that happens in your life is out of his control. I know that's tough, but it's still true. And what that tells us and why that should lift one's spirit is that if it's in God's control, then there's a purpose, an everlasting purpose to what might appear to be random or meaningless. You see, friend, Jesus wants to meet you in your need and he wants to use these things to reveal himself in a powerful way. We'll get to that at the end. If you're like me, it would be easy to see such a reality as being kind of cruel but notice what immediately follows. The verse that immediately follows such a promise. Verse 5, now Jesus, John tells us, just to kind of reaffirm in case you're questioning, Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. 
Isn't it true in the midst of tragedy, the first thing we begin to question is what? Does God love me? Does Jesus love me? It's almost as though John kind of picks up on that sensibility. Right when you might be questioning Jesus' love for Mary and Martha and Lazarus, John interjects, no, 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 no. Jesus, he loved them. He loved them. According to John, confirmed by the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, everything that happens in this story, Lazarus' sickness, Jesus' delay, it all occurred for one reason. Jesus loved them. Now, I mentioned earlier that the word that Mary and Martha used in verse 3 to describe Jesus' love for Lazarus was the Greek word phileo, brotherly love. That being said, and what's interesting about this, is when now John interjects in verse 5 that Jesus loved them, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus, we find an entirely different Greek word. The word we find here is the word agape, which doesn't describe a brotherly love, but an intimate love. Not the love of two homies, but the love of a, of a husband and a wife. It's a deeper love, a divine love, a sacrificial, selfless type of love. Friend, as hard as it is in the moment of pain and loss, when tragedy strikes, and man, does it strike unexpectedly, I encourage you to hold fast to this amazing reality. Jesus doesn't just love you. He loves you more than you even know. Mary and Martha's reaction Jesus will act. Why? Jesus loves us. John says, oh, you think he loves you. Oh, he loves you. They only processed it through a phileo type of love, but John is making it clear it was much deeper than they knew. Jesus loves you, and he doesn't just love you. He loves you more than you know right now. Think about how much Jesus, it's deeper than that. It's always deeper. And thus that means that everything Jesus does in your life manifests from and through that incredible love. Verse 6, so when Jesus heard that Lazarus was sick, he stayed, tarried, two more days in the place where he was. Then after this, Jesus said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. Pause. Before we get any further into the story, we should address why it was that Jesus specifically decides to stay two more days before heading to Bethany. Now don't forget, the reason was for Lazarus' sickness. Lazarus' sickness has been allowed to create an opportunity for Jesus to work in a unique way. He's already made that evident. While Jesus knows Lazarus has died, yes, he'd sent Mary and Martha a promise. That promise is aimed at carrying them through the next few days if they believed. Jesus' point is to get there on day four, and there's a reason for this. According to Jewish tradition, and keep in mind, this is not biblical in any way, but this was an accepted Jewish tradition in this day and age. It was universally believed that the, in the day of death, the soul of a person would remain Yes, outside of the body, but would hover around the body for three days just in case resurrection happened or the, the body was revived. So they believed that, yes, you died, but your, your spirit stayed local for three days. And yet the fourth day, the body had become so corrupted, unrecognizable, uninhabitable, that it's at that point the soul's like, yeah, man, I'm bouncing. No way I'm getting back into that thing. That was the, the traditional belief of the day. Spirit's going to stay around for three days, fourth day, that body, I'm out. Now because of this societal superstition, and in the context of the work Jesus is wanting to perform, it was important in that cultural context that Lazarus be in the tomb for four days so that there would be no doubt he was dead, and had already gone into the afterlife. Like Jesus tarries for two days to ensure this dynamic. Like he's not being callous to Mary and Martha and their emotions. Jesus is deliberately waiting for the perfect moment 
to come to Bethany and fulfill his purposes. Well, in response to Jesus' declaration to the apostles, his crew, that they're going to go in Judea again, verse 8 says that the disciples said to Jesus, Rabbi, lately the Jews sought to stone you. You remember our last few run-ins in Jerusalem? Um, Are you going to go there again? And Jesus said, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if one walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. John then adds, Jesus said these things after he said to them, our friend Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him up. I, I, should, I should mention that the statement made by Jesus here is again identical to what he said to the disciples before the dramatic healing of the man born blind. In John 9, verses 4 and 5, Jesus said to them, I must work the works of him who sent me while it is day. The night is coming when no one can work. As long as I am in the world, Jesus says, I am the light of the world. The disciples' core concern about venturing back into Judea centered on the very clear and present danger. They said, Rabbi, lately they've been trying to stone you. Why are we going to go back to Judea? And then Jesus' response, he goes, are there not 12 hours in the day? And that kind of seems bizarre, like a bizarre way to answer. And yet keep in mind that that this illustration Jesus is using, he's trying to articulate to them that the time was limited. You know, a man works in the day when there's light. There's 12 hours. But then the nighttime's coming. His point is, my time is running out. I'm here to work. It's still daylight. But the daylight, the sun is dipping. The time is running out. I need to act. I don't even care what the threat happens to be. Now, Jesus' statement, Lazarus sleeps, but I go that I may wake him. It totally gets lost by the disciples. Verse 12, the disciples said, Lord, if Lazarus sleeps, he will get well. Their point is, wait a second, if if Lazarus is sleeping, that means maybe the fever has broken. He's probably doing all right. Why are we going to go hang out with him and wake up? Sleep's a good thing when you're sick. However, Jesus spoke of his death. They thought he was speaking about resting and sleep. So Jesus says to them plainly, you guys missed that one. How about this? Lazarus is dead. And I am glad for your sakes that I was not there that you may believe. Nevertheless, let us go to him. What a weird exchange, right? While the disciples are initially puzzled, by what Jesus meant when he says Lazarus sleeps. Jesus clears up all confusion plainly. Follow me, guys. The sleeping thing is an analogy. Lazarus is dead. He's not taking a nap. Now, I find that interesting because what hasn't been included in the passage? There hasn't been a courier to bring that news to Jesus, has there? Like Jesus knows there's a, there's a word of knowledge, a supernatural element. Jesus is aware of what's happening, even though no one has told him. Do you know that? You know, so, so sometimes, prayer. I think we get prayer really weird. Because we come to Jesus, especially with like confession of sin. We get so weird about confessing our sins to Jesus. As if Jesus doesn't already know about your sin. Like you go to Jesus and you're like, hey Jesus, um, I just... You might not know this about me, um, but, but this is what I did last night, and, um, and Jesus is up in heaven like, oh my goodness gracious, where was I? Holy Spirit, Jesus, where were you guys? Like, it's not like you're breaking news to Jesus. It's not like your prayers are like, okay, let's go through the bullet. It's not like amen is like the hashtag, and, and you're just sending tweets to God, keeping him in the loop. Like, he's very aware that he doesn't need someone to bring word of what's gone on for him to know what's gone on. And you should take heart on that. Like, Jesus knows what you're going through, even if you haven't articulated it. He actually knows more than what you could articulate. He goes to them and he says, Lazarus is dead. Now, what I also find interesting, and look back at the text just for a moment. I'm going to single out some words. Jesus says this, look at it. Lazarus is dead. Now notice the next four words. And I am glad. 
Like, what a weird reaction to the death of your friend, your best friend. Yeah, guys, Lazarus is dead, and I'm so glad. That's actually what the text is saying. And in the Greek, it's literally, I, I, I rejoice exceedingly. I'm exceedingly glad that Lazarus is dead. Like, why would Jesus have such a strange reaction? Well, Jesus knew that Lazarus wouldn't be dead long. Like, Jesus, the death of Lazarus was of no concern. Jesus was excited. For what? For the opportunity that he was going to be able to work. He he even says this. He says, I'm glad for your sakes. Why? That you may believe. Well, believe what? Jesus wanted them to believe something about himself. Well, they didn't already believe. And what was it? That he had the power to resurrect the dead. I'm going to present for you a crazy thought. Keep in mind, and this is kind of important when you're studying the Bible, that this story follows the previous story. I know. Mind meld. But it's true. And it's important. Because John is writing thematically. He's building on themes. You know, in John 10, verses 17 and 18, while Jesus is discussing being the good shepherd, remember what he said of himself? I'll read it for you. He says, Therefore my Father loves me because I lay down my life that I may take it again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down of myself. I have the power to lay it down, and I have the power to take it again. Jesus is talking about his death, and he's talking about his resurrection. I have the power to die. No one's going to kill me. I'm going to lay down my life. But I also have the power to take it back up. And to help you believe that, I'm going to allow my buddy to die, be in the tomb for four days, and then I'm going to do something cool so that you believe. And why? Weeks of this event. Jesus will go into Jerusalem. He'll be betrayed. He'll be crucified. He'll be laid in a tomb, very similar to Lazarus. And he's wanting to use Lazarus' most improbable resurrection to help these men believe that he had the power to overcome death and himself would rise the third day. God allowed Lazarus to die so Jesus could resurrect him so they would all believe. There is no question these disciples are really concerned about the imminent threat they're facing going back to Judea. Verse 16, we're told then Thomas who's called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, all right, that's not in the text, that's in the admit. Let us also go. Jesus is going, so let's go, that we may die with him. <laughs> Two quick points about this. First, John tells us something very interesting about Thomas. Something, John's the only one that mentions, but he calls Thomas the twin. You notice twin is capitalized. And what most scholars believe is that Thomas was considered, his nickname was the twin because of his physical resemblance to Jesus. That Thomas uniquely looked a lot like Jesus. Which in context would kind of explain why Thomas is concerned about going to Judea when they're threatening Jesus' life. Because he's sitting there thinking, wait a second man, I look like him. I might get arrested and this might be a whole like, Mistaken identity type of thing. I'm the body double. This ends badly for me. Either way, and it's a fun thought, but you do have to give him some credit. Thomas brings up the suggestion, the men go along with it, but they do go to Judea ready to die. And that should be commended. So when Jesus came, he found that Lazarus had already been dead in the tomb four days. Now Bethany was near Jerusalem, about two miles away. And many of the Jews had joined the women around Mary and Martha to comfort them concerning their brother. By the time Jesus arrives, Lazarus has been dead for four days. In the first century context, the very day Lazarus died, so day one, he would have been laid in the tomb because of the lack of refrigeration. The fact that the Jews didn't embalm like the ancient Egyptians did. The burial process, Middle Eastern culture, hot, humid, sticky, they had to bury you quick. 
the day you died, to avoid complications. Soon after his death, the body of Lazarus would be washed from head to toe. His hands and his feet, his legs, they they would have been bound together and his body wrapped tightly with a burial cloth. At that point, they would have taken Lazarus, they would have laid him in a family tomb known as a sarcophagus. The word sarcophagus, the word actually means flesh eater. (laughs) Because it would be why Lazarus laid in this place that his body would be eaten. It would decay and deteriorate. In the sarcophagus, there would be a a little ledge. His body would be laid there. They would have anointed his body with all kinds of burial spices, all designed to just keep down the stench. Once that process was complete, they would have placed a shroud across his eyes, across his face. They would have sealed the tomb shut. On a side note, this is not applicable to Lazarus, but two years later, they would reopen the tomb. Nothing but bones would remain. The flesh eater did its work. They would have collected the bones, put them in a little box known as an ossuary, which would then be stored on a shelf along with the rest of your your family. And because the passage tells us that Lazarus has been dead for four long days, the process of decomposition is well underway. I kind of struggled with how much details to give you about what a body looks like by day four. I'll just give you this. Not only has rigor mortis come and and gone, but Lazarus' blood by day four would have totally separated. It would have settled. His whole backside would have been bruised. His bodily fluids would have been completely released. The natural bacteria in his gut would have already begun eating him from the inside out. Like the enzymes in the pancreas by day four would have caused the pancreas to have eaten itself. His lung, his heart, Totally decomposing. His brain is nothing but a soupy mush. That doesn't even begin to scratch the surface on the effects insects are having on the body tissue by day four. Even the soul's like, I'm out. Now, aside from these effects, the natural ones on Lazarus, decomposing. Also note that for the last four days... Mary and Martha have been in mourning. Culturally speaking, this period of mourning would have lasted for seven days, but because they were wealthy, it could have lasted an entire month. The whole community of Bethany, and likely those within Jerusalem, had gathered, had joined Mary and Martha. They are weeping, they are wailing in solidarity. Verse 20, then Martha, as soon as she heard that Jesus was coming, went and met him. I wonder how long Martha had been waiting. They'd sent word. There had been an expectation. Maybe once Lazarus had died, they kind of checked the expectation a little bit. Still curious, when is Jesus going to show up? So Martha goes and meets him. Mary sitting in the house, and Martha said to Jesus, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. I've got to give her a little credit. Credit's deserved. She did believe that Jesus would would have had the power to heal Lazarus of sickness if he had been present. Most interestingly, Jesus could have healed him even not being present. We see examples of that. Martha continues, but even now, I know that whatever whatever you ask of God, God will give you. Now, it's unlikely that resurrection was in her mind. Well, Jesus said to her, your brother will rise again. And Martha said to him, I know that Lazarus will rise again in the resurrection at the last day. Again, to her credit, she believes that Lazarus would be resurrected. And she just doesn't expect the resurrection to happen then. But Jesus said to her, I am the resurrection and the life. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. And whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Again, we find here a double negative. Never, ever, ever die. And then Jesus asked her, do you believe this? When Jesus says here, I am the resurrection and the life. He's not saying there was a resurrection or would be a resurrection. He's claiming that he is the resurrection and the life. 
It's not the resurrection as an event. Jesus is presenting the resurrection as a person. Understand resurrection and life occur through an interaction with Jesus. And the context of the the, the practical and the present implications of everlasting life. That everlasting life is not something you have then, but you have now that lasts forever. Jesus is going to use Lazarus to illustrate an important critical point. Jesus came, everlasting life. Jesus came not just to offer life for eternity, but he came to offer life today. It's not about a resurrection in the future. It's about a resurrection presently through an exchange with Jesus. This is why he continues. He who believes in me, though he may die, he shall live. Then he explains, whoever lives and believes in me shall never die. Do you see the connections that Jesus is making here? It is the present life that comes from believing in him that causes a man to live forever. That's what Jesus is saying. Think of it this way. Jesus is offering you a life today that will last for all of eternity. That's with this in mind that the the obvious question that Jesus asked Martha, do you believe? Do you believe this? That's the fundamental question Jesus poses to all of humanity. Do you believe that resurrection life, not just in the future but presently, is found in Jesus That Jesus wants to give you life today. A life as radical as causing a man who's been dead for four days to rise and walk out. Do you want to experience that type of life? And if you don't, I I just ask, why not? Notice Martha's response, verse 27. She said to him, yes, Lord. I believe that you are the Christ, the Son of God, who's come into the world. Now, Martha, Martha had come to believe all of the essential points about who Jesus was. But tragically, Martha has failed to fully understand what Jesus had come to provide. That's the disconnect here for Martha. (laughs) That disconnect will soon be rectified. And Martha, when she had said these things, she went her way and she secretly called Mary her sister. She said, the teacher has come and is calling for you. As soon as she heard that, Mary arose quickly and came to Jesus Now Jesus had not yet come into the town, but was in the place where Martha had met him. Then the Jews who were with Mary in the house and comforting her, when they saw her rise up quickly and go out, they followed her, saying, She is going to the tomb to weep there. Then when Mary came to where Jesus was, she saw him and fell down at his feet and said, Lord, if you had been here, my brother would not have died. The identical appeal of Martha. They had rehearsed this. Therefore, when Jesus saw her weeping and the Jews who came with her weeping, he groaned in the spirit and was troubled. And he said, where have you laid him? And they said to him, Lord, come and see. Jesus wept. While Mary and Martha come to Jesus with the identical appeal, do you notice, and I find this so important, that Jesus handles both of these two women radically different. In the case of Martha, Jesus answers that appeal with a theological answer. They discuss some theology about the resurrection. And yet with Mary, Jesus replies to the same question in a different way. He replies with tears. Not theology, not an explanation, just the heart. Jesus individualizes his care to to what each woman needed dealing with the same crisis. Notice, in the presence of a weeping Mary, John tells us that Jesus groaned in the Spirit and was troubled. What Jesus saw here provoked two responses. First, Jesus groaned. In the Greek, this word groaned, it means he snorted in. Like the word is actually used in Greek literature to describe a bull who's snorting in ready to charge. That's that's the picture being painted. He groaned. He was moved with an indignation and anger. And we're told that he was troubled. Again, in the original language, this means that Jesus was moved. he He was stirred. He was going to act. Which, understandably, 
is why he now inquires where the tomb is. They tell him. They invite him to come. And then notice what happens. Jesus simply tells us, Jesus wept. Now keep reading. Verse 36, Then the Jews said, See how he loved him. And some of them said, Could not this man who opened the eyes of the blind also have kept this man from dying? They're they're questioning his power, at least his heart. And Jesus, again growing in himself, came to the tomb. It was a cave, and a stone laid against it. Now, every time I've heard this passage described, taught, presented, it has, last, it has Jesus what? The scene. You have Jesus standing in front of Lazarus' tomb, right? And what is he doing? He's weeping over his death. The death of his friend. And yet, do you notice that is not the picture the text paints? Instead, John tells us very specifically, look at it. Jesus saw Mary weeping. He groaned. He was troubled. He asked where Lazarus was laid. Then he weeps, presumably as he's making his way to the tomb itself. Then it actually seems Jesus has stopped weeping by the time he arrives at the tomb. Now he's going to act. In the Greek, this word weep, it means that Jesus really shed tears. Like this was not crying. This was passionate. Almost an uncontrollable emotional expression But for our purposes, why did Jesus weep? It seems that Jesus wept and the reason for his weeping was unrelated to Lazarus entirely. Jesus wept, according to the text, when he saw the raw effects Lazarus' death had on his dear friend Mary. He cried over Mary, not Lazarus. Her weeping caused Jesus to weep. In the face of death and the pain that it caused Mary, Jesus was angry, he was moved to action, and he was emotionally overwhelmed. Please understand what the passage is not telling us. Jesus did not weep over his own loss. Why would he weep about Lazarus? He knew he was about to say, Lazarus, come forward. And Lazarus, he knew where where Lazarus was. If he wept for Lazarus at all, it was the fact that he was going to call Lazarus back to this planet. Like, he's not weeping for Lazarus for his loss. He didn't weep to identify with a human condition. I just want to let you all know that I'm also moved in the presence of someone dying that I'm friends with. No. That's not it at all. Instead, it was in the presence of death and the effects that death had on those that he loved. That's what drove Jesus to tears, among other emotions. Jesus wept because sin had destroyed life. Death, not part of his creation, not part of his design, had been victorious. And in the process had caused so much human pain. So Jesus said, verse 39, take away the stone. And Martha, this is why earlier I didn't, you know, she's not expecting resurrection the sister of whom who was dead, she said to Jesus, Lord, um, <clears throat> by this time there is a stench. He's been dead for four days. But Jesus said to her, did I not say to you that if you would believe, you would see the glory of God? Like Jesus is reminding her why all of this has happened. Martha, there's a point here. So they took the stone from the place where the dead man was lying And Jesus lifted his eyes and said, he he prays, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. And I know that you always hear me. But because of the people who are standing by, I say this, that they may believe that you sent me. Basically what Jesus is saying, I don't need to pray out loud because you always hear me. But I'm going to pray out loud so they hear me and know what's happening. Now when he had said these things, Jesus cried out with a loud voice. It was a scream. Lazarus, come forth. And he who had died came out, bound, hand and foot. He comes hobbling out with grave clothes. And his face was wrapped with a cloth, the shroud. And Jesus said to them, loose him and let him go. 
Now, there is so much to unpack, so much we can discuss about this miracle. I don't have near the time to even scratch the surface. So I want to close our time this morning. We're going to punt several things to the next study. But I do want to close with a particular point of application. Friend, the trying situations that you're presently facing, and I don't know what they are, but I share the existence with you, so I know that they exist. Whatever it is you're facing, I want you to know this morning, these things do not have to be seen as being random. Nor are they meaningless or without a purpose. Instead, in the greater point of application from this story, I challenge you this morning to see them as an opportunity for Jesus to reveal an important aspect of Himself you could or never would have known otherwise. Think about Mary and Martha. They knew a lot about Jesus, didn't they? I mean, they were actually way ahead of the game. They confessed that Jesus was the Christ. They confessed He was the Son of God. In our passage, they herald Him as their Lord. They see Him as their teacher. They were confident Jesus had the power to heal. Beyond all of that, they considered Jesus their friend. Once more, as illustrated in their appeal, Mary and Martha were willing to trust that in His love for them, Jesus would act accordingly upon receiving word of Lazarus' sickness. And yet... In an even greater act of love than any of them knew, Jesus, he allows Lazarus to die so that they could see him do something. And in seeing him work, that they would believe that what? Jesus was the resurrection and the life. Something they didn't know before that. Friend, this story illustrates that grief and loss are not allowed into our lives to cripple us, but to deepen our understanding of who Jesus really is. Because He's more than you know. Now, I know some of you are sitting there thinking, are you saying, Pastor Zach, that in order for me to fully realize Jesus as the comforter of broken hearts, that I'm going to have to go through a situation where my heart is broken? That to really know Jesus as the Prince of Peace, I may have to endure a war of sorts. That to completely experience Jesus' strength, I may be placed into situations deliberately to push me to the brink of what I can handle. Are you saying that? Yes. That's exactly what I'm saying. Like, like consider that regardless of your view of Jesus, all of the things I just described are going to happen anyway. You're going to go through a war. Your heart's going to get broken. You're going to get pushed to the brink of your strength anyway. Right? That's a given. Regardless of how you view Jesus. You see, Jesus wept because tragedy was never part of His master design. Life wasn't supposed to be this way. The pain that we are experiencing in life is purely a manifestation of a cancer that we introduce to the ecosystem that's taken over everything and destroyed all that God in Genesis declared good. And yet, Jesus does more than weep over the state of affairs. Jesus is stirred to act. And practically, how does He act? He becomes the remedy for the effects of sin. The effects of this broken world reveal to us new aspects of who Jesus is for one reason. Jesus is affected by sin. This is a provocative thought. Follow me here. But there are many aspects to who Jesus is that have only manifested because sin and death entered the human equation. Most notably, God donned human flesh and came to earth as a baby boy for one reason. To save you and I from sin. 
and to provide eternal life. If it hadn't been for sin, Jesus would have never come as a babe wrapped in swaddling clothes. Why would he? That was the Christmas connection, by the way. Jesus, think about it. Jesus manifests as a great comforter. Why? Because those experiencing the effects of sin need to be comforted. Apart from sin, would Jesus ever be a comforter? No. There would be no need. Again, consider that it was directly because of sin and death that Jesus became the resurrection and the life. Resurrection was never needed in the context of a garden where man could live forever. Jesus would never have been the resurrection if it hadn't been for sin. So yes, there's a lot of things that happen in your life because of sin that stink. But those very things cause Jesus to become the remedy you need for them. That's how that works. Well, it's a bummer i got to go through those things to know Jesus that way. Well, if you didn't go through those things, Jesus wouldn't be it. Because that's not what you would need in the moment. Like My, my point is this. You only really have one of two perspectives in the presence of human tragedy. You can chalk it up to pure random chance and thus see it as being meaninglessness. Meaningless. Or you can be thankful that Jesus is willing to become your remedy. Those are your options. There's no purpose in this. Or the purpose is that Jesus can meet me in my need. And Lazarus' death Jesus was able to reveal himself as being more than anyone in this story could have ever imagined he was. Jesus was the resurrection and the life. So, Father, Lord, with that word... We